Hello, good evening, and welcome to the CG Pro podcast. My name is Ed Dawson Taylor, and tonight we have Scott Squires. And if you like what you hear today, we will be doing it again in two weeks. Follow us on YouTube, and if you're interested in the classes that we run as a school, follow us at becomecgpro.com. So tonight it gives me great pleasure to welcome Scott Squires. He is a prolific visual effects artist and supervisor and entrepreneur and innovator and has worked on some incredible projects going back to Close Encounters and through much of the history of ILM and um, it's had several companies along the way and been very active in through VR and into virtual production. Um, so my my intro, thank you very much, Scott, for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Um, so I, I always like to start this off just by asking you a little bit about what what inspired you initially to kind of explore this area of, of filmmaking and, and visual effects. What were some of your early influences and things that piqued your curiosity? Uh, well, I grew up in a small town in Indiana, uh, like 5,000 people. I was loved the Ray Harryhausen films and things like that. I uh, was always interested in animation. Um, and I also was interested in insects and stuff. So I bought a Rolex 160 Super 8 film camera. Uh, I was filming things and, you know, thought, hey, this would be a great, great job, <laughs> you know, if, you know, once I get out of school uh, to get into visual effects. That just seemed like uh, an ideal job with a lot of interesting things. I could apply anything from mob railroading that I'd done and other things and optics and photography and combine all of those into to one career. So it sounded great to me. So cool. And then uh, basically it just came out to California. My, my older brother was here and I came out for the uh, assistant cameraman's training test. They had 2000 people showed up for like four or five spots had nothing to do with cameras. It was more in the SAT test. So I didn't get in there, but knocked on doors for six to nine months. And then uh, that's when I connected with Doug Trumbull. Wow. Wow. What a great connection. Yeah. Hmm. So, so you, you got in, um, it's, it's really interesting that I got, you know, initially for me, I, I was really interested by practical effects and thought that was going to be my path. And then kind of digital was starting to take over at that point. But, um, you've, you've had the, the fortune of going through a lot of practical effects and photography and, and optical at the beginning. Um, so what, what was that, what was that like, you know, initially, you know, you, you, um, kind of started there. Uh, that, that was fantastic because, uh, you know, at that time you had to figure out how to do things, uh, right. you had to know photography, you had to know possibly chemistry, uh, physics and other types of things. How am I going to solve this problem? So, I mean, the, the first day on the job, they gave me a 20 gallon aquarium and $20 petty cash and said, we need to get, create clouds in a, you know, to make a, to photograph for this movie. And we think when we pour cream in our coffee, that looks like clouds, but we can't photograph that. So we need you to figure that out. So wow. that's why I did the first week. So that, so, and then from there, just continued on with other things. So, so that's when I developed uh, basically salt water, layer of salt water laid down. And then we would carefully lay in a layer of fresh water on top and inject uh, tempera paints. Uh, in the freshwater layer, and that would just settle down onto the the uh, surface of the sea salt layer. And uh, from outside the tank, you couldn't see the line at all. So, so they built a two thousand gallon aquarium essentially, and we had special filters and things, and that's how we shot the clouds for close encounters. And I was fortunate enough on that project to work in every department. I worked in the model shop. I worked uh, with Dennis Muring on shooting all the mothership shots. I worked in the animation camera shooting stars and color things and, uh, you know, just 
in the matte painting department. Yeah, just about everything there. So it was a really unique opportunity for, for getting up to speed with all of those things. Wow, that's so cool. And that, that was your first job? That was the first film job, yes. Wow, yeah. what, a, what an amazing one to be your first job. Well, and, you know, part of the problem was, you know, in the Midwest, if there's not a lot of film opportunities or even getting film information. So so I be, I was a newspaper photographer half-time the last two years of school uh, and doing the darkroom work uh, and then doing my own filming on the side. And then I also became a theater projectionist. So I was that for a couple of weeks till a tornado blew down the, uh, the theater. But... Uh, just trying to get as much knowledge as they could as quickly as they could right wow and incredible uh to to be there at that moment and be there with those people inventing the basis of of visual effects really right And and doug was fantastic about coming up with mechanisms to drive things and it was fairly elaborate some of the things that we did for like the mothership to get the patterns and the moving lights and so forth so it was a uh, a fun process i bet and all all practical so yeah, yeah all, really a lot of mechanical things to figure out physical yes yeah yeah how how um so it sounds like it was um yeah needed a, a good diverse skill set of kind of mix of engineering and and uh an artistry one of, one of the things i found interesting getting into visual effects myself coming from engineering coming from software engineering specifically was was trying to get into the art side of it and train my eye and uh was that was that something that it sounds like you had some good experience before then of um camera work and and now that that side of it but was that something that was how, how was that kind of getting getting into it? Well, since I did have photography experience and dealing with, uh, you know, for the newspaper and yearbook and other types of things, um, I had most of that. And I'd already been shooting, not films, most of the time I was shooting test pieces and things, little animations or other types of things, stop motion, odds and ends and so forth. So, so all of the, you know, the photography part came fairly easily to me. Hmm. Did did you have any idea when you were working on that movie of what a massive hit that it was going to be, what an iconic film that was going to be in film history? Uh, no, I mean, Spielberg was there, you know, during parts of it, of course. Uh, so I knew it was going to be a pretty good sized film. This was my first one. So I had, you know, uh, no idea how big it was. Um, and I didn't think we'd be talking about it, whatever it's been. 30 years 40 years a while yeah (laughs) so uh yeah i hadn't really thought it in that it was just being in the moment and saying okay let's you know now we've got to do this uh, you know so that that part was great that's cool yeah i mean it's amazing how how well some of those movies still hold up and i think testament to the the artistry that was was going on despite whatever techniques and it's really amazing to look back to things like Jurassic Park and see how how well they still hold up today you know mm-hmm. so, some films not so much but films like that really do you know, they well and then you know I mean obviously at that time the optical printing and dealing with all that so we had we shot in 65 millimeter uh, Star Wars was shooting about that same time on this division to try to get larger uh, film stocks and higher grain because we had to duplicate things. Um, so it was, you know, it, it's much, much easier now, shall I say, uh, and much, and certainly from a hobbyist or a uh, new person, it's so much easier now to do a lot of things. You know, wh- when I was shooting my own Super 8, that was like $18 a roll for three minutes without sound. Now, you know, you've got your iPhone, you pull it out, you're shooting 4K and you're, you know, and you've got Unreal and all these other things at your disposal. So it's, it's been a huge leap for, you know, huge opportunity for a lot of people now. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, what, what, what do you think are some of the things, though, that are benefits of having gone through that kind of way into it? 
Well, some of the benefits is when I get a problem, I take a look at from a lot of different options or different approaches to it. Uh, sometimes when people are only doing digital, they only focus on that aspect and, and don't think, okay, I, there's still a point where some models and doing physical inserts and uh, things like that are actually uh, a better solution possibly. You know, it just depends on the project. Um, so that's, uh, that's the thing is just trying to think of how can I make this simpler? How can I achieve this in different ways? You know, because as I say, a lot of times right now, it's like, okay, I'm going to use, you know, my hammer because that's all I've been doing. Uh, so sometimes we see that in, in digital effects is uh, using those same types of tools, but sometimes it's worth taking another look at it, a different approach. To it. Right. So you think it feel like it, it gives you a, an ability to look out outside of the problem a little bit more because you kind of had to? Uh, yes. Yeah, certainly. Because I've, I've seen people used to shooting certain types of things. And then uh, because I've also done motion graphics the old fashioned way and little gags and things like that, that we use to create the chrome lock and glints and all those types of things. You know, when I'm looking at a problem, I can say, okay, well, let's we'll go this other old fashioned route, uh, possibly to simplify something or make it look better, faster and easier. Right. Yeah, I was, I was curious whether um, sometimes now, given that you can, you can do a lot of things in digital, um, whether sometimes you, you just decide it's better to do it the, the traditional way. Right. Yeah. And the other, you know, it's just, it's also more fun in some ways because you're not just, okay, I'm going to write some software to change those pixels there. Uh, you know, so how, how can I achieve that? Or even just shooting as references you know, can I get some interesting results and use those as a basis? Uh, just because sometimes you get into doing simulations and things and day after day, they're making slight improvements. And, you know, there's times where you just say, you know, let's, let's just do something. Cause, uh, we did that for Van Helsing. We ended up just shooting a bunch of physical goo for certain shots to be one of the elements there, as opposed to simulating things. Uh, for some things or in combination with simulation. Right. Yeah, it's, it's um, part, I think part of what worked really well with Jurassic Park was obviously the massive leap forward in, in getting into CG, which had never been done before in that way, but also a lot of practical in that. And the amount of CG time-wise is not actually all that much right. relatively. There's just the right little amount of CG in there that the rest of it kind of helps prop it up in a lot of ways. Do you feel like to like today there's um, um, sometimes too much in the way of digital or like the, the balance is off? Uh, well, I, I think sometimes uh, it's pushed so much in the audience's face, you know, and that depends on the project and the director and so forth. Um, it just, you know, you, obviously we see people on, the internet say oh, we hate CG and so forth, and I just look at it as a tool. But you know, if if a director's pushing things beyond you know a believability level, then then the audience gets a little bit worn down by some of those types of things. Even though they're still seeing a ton of visual effects every day on any TV show or movie or anything else, it's you know any film coming out these days has some level of visual effects. Right. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like um, having gone through uh, film, particularly shooting with film, that it helped you to kind of, I, I feel personally having um, done a lot of photography and before I got into visual effects and, and even to the extent of doing a lot of processing and darkroom work, that the amount of time and cost that it took to produce a single image was so significant that I really had to think really carefully when I put when I press the shutter or when I chose which cell to develop like it was a real commitment yes to doing yeah, that that's exactly the point you would have to focus and say okay like you know you know that each take is costing so much money and you know whether it's a still or footage uh so you, you take extra care to make sure everything was right and these days 
people don't necessarily double check or, you know, uh, just make sure everything's all set because they're just going to skew through quite a bit of footage at a time. So, so it does make you focus more, uh, especially when there is a cost associated with that. Right. And do, do you think there's any way that you can kind of get back some of that sensibility from having to take the time in interview finder to get a shot as opposed to doing coverage and picking the, the best one out of the bunch? Well, I, th I think it's a, well, you know, it's a balancing act, of course. Uh, I think it's more of just the mindset of, okay, let's, mm. you know, and there are times where you may have to be shooting a bunch and then that's practical, but uh, when you can take a step back and say, okay, is the shot looking right? Is, you know, what have I forgotten? Let me double check before we roll the camera here. Um, so all of that's worth taking a moment to take, you know, one breath and say, okay, is everything here working? Right. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because I guess now um, everything's predominantly digital. It's probably a different uh, set of skills that are important today than there were say 20 years ago when I, I got into the industry 15 years ago roughly and it's still it's different today than it was then um, do you have any uh, any thoughts on uh, what what you would advise people today to to be a good kind of based skill set for entering the world of visual effects well I think the key things are to be you know uh to focus on learning and getting up to speed as much as you can. Uh, and you want to try to be, start as a generalist in terms of understanding the whole process. And don't, don't fixate on which buttons to push on Maya and so forth. I would fixate more on, do, you know, do I understand what the process is underneath this? So if I switch from After Effects to Nuke or whatever the case might be, I could still do my job. I still understand the fundamentals of what's going on. And I would take advantage of the fact that you probably have a camera in your pocket and probably have a laptop or computer of some sort, desktop, something, and process it, play around with it. There's no free software out there. Take advantage of all those things. You've got Blender and uh, different compositing apps and so forth. So there's there's no restriction now to do whatever you want to do, really. And with Unreal being free, you can go ahead and explore all of that. So so I would dive right in and get hands-on experience as much as possible. And obviously, you guys have a program and, uh, you know, there's lots of YouTubes and, you know, Unreal has their whole learning program. There's plenty of opportunities to get up to speed that the... So try to focus your time on on figuring out what you want to do. Explore the different areas. Do you want to focus on modeling or animation? Be aware of all of those, but then probably start focusing towards one specific area. Uh, tends to make it usually easier to hire, but it depends. You know, for smaller companies, they like people who are more generalist. So it just depends on on what you want to accomplish. Right, but you you recommend starting with generalism to get an idea of of what's going on and, and to get an idea of the whole process before honing in i i do just so that you understand you know you don't want to end up going to well, i want to focus on this one thing and then going and then two years later looking over and going oh well, i actually would have much preferred that i mean right. you can still switch over but i'm just saying it also helps you know, even if you're just rotoing or you're just modeling, it's good to kind of know what the other people around you are doing and how they fit into this whole, you know, environment, this whole ecosystem of uh, everybody's doing their little pieces and it's all got to come together. So, so the fact that you know a little bit about modeling or a little bit about animation and these other things help helps you to kind of understand the big picture. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've found, I definitely resonate with that from my my own career. And I've, I wouldn't say I was necessarily nosy, but curious of what was going on around me. And really, I, I mean, I wanted to be a generalist too. I was kind of told at the beginning that I should choose my eternity kind of thing and to choose your specialism and stick with it, which really annoyed me. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to do, I want to try, I want to try everything. And um, originally, 
and I had a, a dreams of becoming a character animator. I think probably like a lot of people found out that actually didn't took about 10 years to work out that I didn't actually want to be be that didn't want to specialize in it but I, I wanted to be a generalist I, I feel like um, that that probably it began with predominantly generalists and then got more specialized over time but do you feel like that's now still the case is is um, has virtual production or some of the new ways of working kind of opened it back up again well, yeah, and I consider myself a generalist uh, as well. Yeah. And, that's, and for anybody looking to get into being a uh, visual effects supervisor, even virtual production supervisor, having a general knowledge and understanding of all these is very good. You, you kind of need that because if you've only been focused on one area for the last five years, it's, you know, if you're going to step into a supervisor type role of any sort, you want to understand what the range of people are doing and how, how they're doing it. You don't necessarily have to know, you know, have 10 years experience in each of those categories, but you have to understand what they're doing and the basics and certainly the terminology and all of those types of things. So you can communicate effectively with them. Right. Yeah. Do you have a, uh any recommendations for how how people can get exposed to the the kind of higher level skills i know sometimes it can feel like jumping up to being in a, in a world-class studio like ilm for example is it definitely did to me felt like a um, huge huge jump to get there and it was uh, quite it took quite a while before i managed to get into that that studio and do something useful um but you know, those kinds of places are where a lot of the knowledge is. And you know, I know there's a lot on freely available on YouTube and a lot of information out there that you can access. But um, what do you feel about the kind of the old um, uh, process of apprenticeships and you know that that way of passing knowledge down? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I wasn't so much mentored myself, and just learning from all the other people. You know. Uh, and at that point, uh, you know, I got into the assistant or the um, as an assistant cameraman in the union and so forth. But but it was all the other people working. And that's that's what you should take a look at is the people in where you're working now and, and try to gather as much information from them and try to glean as much as you can from them as you work on honing on your skills and ask questions. Uh, about how you're doing things and what, why are we doing that? You don't want to become a pest, but you do want to, you know, advance your knowledge. Uh, and as I say, we you have the opportunity now to at least do some work on your own if you have some some time still left after visual effects, but to do some work on your own and uh, and and explore things, you know, which is a great opportunity to to up your level so that you can create a great demo reel, great show reel, so that you can use that uh, as you're looking for jobs or opportunities. You know, try to get up to speed, and then as you move from company to company or department to department, try to absorb as much as you can. Um, you know, just hone your skill sets further up. It's great advice. Oh, I, I wanted to ask you about the, the transition from uh, you were at ILM in a really must have well, must have been a really exciting time, helping it transition into digital and really building, transforming it. Um, what what was that like? It must have been such a, an exciting time. Uh, yeah, it was great. I mean, um, you know, at I started a company called DreamQuest, and uh, I was a co-owner and founder of that. And ran that for like five years. And during that time, we started seeing video and, and started understanding, okay, well, can we start doing any of this for film work? And so I started to design an image processing system because I could see the potential coming up and, and how, you know, okay, well, I could do a difference matter. I could, you know, you could control everything at that point, which on the optical printer, you, you only had so much control and it was all a little bit of voodoo magic when you were, working on those things because you were never quite sure how how the final exposure would work out 
so when I went to ILM and I was put in charge of all the new developments and so forth, so seeing the laser scanner that they were using for young Sherlock Holmes, okay, well, you know, let's let's take advantage of all of this. So so I was involved in the process of uh, designing a, a real film scanner. Uh, so ILM developed one of the first film scanners because if we're going to manipulate things, we have to have a reliable and good way to bring in that. So I, I got a technical academy award for, for doing that. So that was part of the step. And then we also, of course, wanted to start manipulating things. Um, and uh, John Knoll, his, his brother, had developed Photoshop. Uh, so he had that. And then I wrote a special program that would control Photoshop so we could actually use it for moving images. Wow. And uh, I went ahead at that point and developed something called Flipbook, which was a real-time playback and compositing system. Uh, and then that became Commotion, which I set up a company and we sold that for. And then that was subsequently sold to Pinnacle, which was then sold to Avid. A anyway, so it's just trying to uh, move forward with all of those things and um, you know just just explore what what could be done with those. Now, you know, Dennis and I always Dennis Marion and I always knew that compositing that made sense, but at that point, computer graphics, and this was before Jurassic, was was very limited. I mean, you had mm -hmm. the teapots, you had the, you know they would go to SIGGRAPH and we'd see these painful shorts with teapots moving around or something. We go, well, that, that looks nice, but you know, uh, you know, what can we do with it? You know, at a certain point, uh, because yep. the camera moves were terrible. The you know, and and it was very limited. It was all hard surface. It was very good, but um, and at that point, trying to deal with motion blur, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously, as they started to push the envelope, and we that happened. And like I said, we were a little bit surprised by how quickly the 3D started to happen once once the you know once it started to let loose and we, we could actually control things in a much finer manner. What, so you, you kind of casually mentioned you starting businesses and becoming a developer or at least, did, were you, were you, did you teach yourself um, programming and start creating these systems? Yeah, I built, um, I built right out of, well, when I was working on Close Encounters, I built a computer from just a board. It was $100 scratch built wire app from, you know, popular electronics had 256 bytes of RAM in it. And that was it, toggle switches. So oh. started with that because I wanted to control a model railroad, you know, just, you know, I'm always trying to solve different problems. And so uh, the thing with like commotion is uh, they would have like an ILM, an abacus system, which at that time was like a video playback system, a hard drive. But they would have a line of people just to see their dailies, you know. So I went ahead and wrote a program for the Macintosh so I could play it back in real time on my own desktop. And so from there, I just started adding more and more features, you know. So because I don't, you know, at um, DreamQuest, I wrote. I wrote in uh, the software to do our motion control system, and I designed the electronics with Fred Gucci to control, you know, like a dozen different motors, and we ended up with multiple motion control systems. Um, and so, it was just once again trying to solve problems, so I could go ahead and actually make something. So that's that's been one of the things is just if there's a problem, then I can solve it in some means, whether it's a physical thing or software, then that's that's what I'll try to do. Right. Is that, that's the kind of part of it that's the most exciting to you is having a, a worthy challenge and overcoming it. Uh, yeah, that, that is an exciting thing, uh, as well as creative challenges. Okay, how, how are we yeah. going to make this and what, what looks good and things like that. Just just something interesting, so I'm not doing the same thing all over again. Right. So you, you have the same variety um, need that I do by the sounds oh, yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And that's, that's obviously with virtual production, some of these other things that, okay, there's 
another thing to to look at and you know there's obvious growing pains and so forth and that that was the thing with digital it's like okay now we can do that now we need to you know solve the next step so in things like uh we did Dragonheart just a couple of years after um Jurassic Park and here we were generating much more massive models like the head of, of the dragon is more vertices than entire t-rex and we had like three times the number of shots and you know uh, other things going on so in, and of course we had lip sync and so you know so so each project got more and more complex and tried to leverage everything that we could with each project there right it seems like that's still going <laughs> that's saying oh, yeah. yeah. pushing the edge whenever the you catch up with the hardware you want to overtake it push it to do more than it's capable of and then the hardware has is forced to catch up and yeah interesting dance we we have a couple of questions that oh. have come in um somebody's asking uh in the in the days when practical effects were the primary way to get things done we often had to be inventors what were some of the most memorable things that you found you needed to invent to get a shot uh well uh as i say uh, for close encounters doug did most of the inventing but we i would just to show you the range um so we had a xy table a big uh table uh, basically a metal framework that moved x and y like a plotter in the old-fashioned yeah. scanner there was a photo cell on it so he would make up artwork on an animation cell like black tape with lines and they'd be changing. They tape we tape that on, then we had like a four channel motion control system, uh, or it might have been eight as I think about, it. but but that would move this along. The photocell would read that. That was electronically connected to a little electronic shutter, which was in front of a light, and then there was a fiber optic going out of that, and then that was motorized to turn around. And so at the bottom of the mothership, when you see those, that ring moving and changing there, that's all done by that means for most of it. So you have to think in terms of time and uh, the exposure and what's going to, you know, how that's all going to work and how much you would offset it to get it, the animation to work correctly. And then at the same time, it would be shooting on uh, over an animation. Robert Swarth, the head of animation, had gags as he called them. So it's black cardboard with the slit in it. And then uh, he had two little pins holding like a little uh, fan shape cardboard. And so he'd have those marked and you'd animate and shoot a frame and then animate and shoot a frame. And that's what, you know, when the bands go to specific colors to match the, synchronize the sound. Uh, and in terms of things I've done, um, you know, it just, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the practical things, you know, we, we went through quite a bit, at, especially at, um, I'm just trying to think of specific projects for, for, uh, oh, for the Star Trek, the motion picture, set up a laser, and that was scanning artwork, and that's how we made some of the different shapes for feature. We also ended up making uh, the original wormhole effect by utilizing that. Uh, and then there's also those things that you come up even on the live action of simplifying shots or uh, bypassing things. On Star Trek, uh, the motion picture, we also had a point where there's lights going around. And we originally tested a, some glasses with um, faceted so we could have lights and they, they make sweeping beams across. But on the day, we couldn't get the amount of light needed, so I took a soda can, punched holes in it, we put it on, rotated, so that's what generating those lights around, you know, in there. <laughs> so, and that that's the other thing, to step back, I have no problems simplifying or losing a shot if we don't have to do it. I'd rather focus on what we need to. So for like, uh, in the mask, we had Jim Carrey in the suit, you know, suit suit, and there's a shot where they're supposed to pull all these things out of his pockets. And so we plan to do that as all as CG pants to replace his pants with CG. And then 
when they reframed the shot, and that was how it was originally reported, but when they reframed the shot to be like a cowboy shot, and he was wearing these baggy pants, I said, let's just cut them off, make shorts out of them, and cut the holes in the pockets and just pass stuff up. The, the <laughs> costume designer wasn't too happy about that because she only had like one or two others, but uh, so that's what we had. We had two PAs underneath passing off the items, and he's pulling them off. So I was just trying to think of, okay, well, how, how do we solve this problem? You know, um, you know, I mean, with each of the different things, there's been practical things. At, uh, on, at DreamQuest, we did ultraviolet matting, and we would also do things like we had these giant diamonds for a continental commercial. So we coat them with a, a rubber plastic, a rubber coating, which we could paint white, use the motion control, bring it back, then peel it off, and then shoot the actual thing. Because you were always trying to figure out, okay, how, how can we do this? Because we don't, we didn't have digital tools. So, uh, but even when digital, you know, even before digital imaging, we started using digital tools. Obviously, we were using motion control and most people don't realize the motion control system used for for star wars and for close encounters were just electronics there was no computer in them it was just it would record what you were doing here and just play it back to the motors uh but for uh i think it was blue thunder we were using i set up a rear projection a digitizer tablet and frame by frame was tracking the shots and we used that to control the pan and tilt of the camera. And then for deal of the century, we, we had like 125 foot motion control system uh, out at Hartman where we'd done Buck Rogers and Galactica. Uh, but the problem was that the cement and all the practical things meant that the camera's doing this as it's going down. We had to shoot mm -hmm. really long lenses. So it's, even if you, readjust it and level it, which we did quite a bit, it's still going to be a little bit off. So so I also set up the program so we could go through and it would automatically, we we track it and then it would have that data. So as it's going down, it's automatically panning and tilting to make sure it stayed uh, true to that point. So just, you know, like I say, coming up with different things on uh, whether that's practical or digital, for Dragonheart, I wrote a program on like the Power Mac or the Laptop 180 with the, to a 3D, um, basically a surveyor's tool. So we had people out with the surveyors and I'd record all of that automatically and show a whole 3D scheme of it. And that, that we were able to turn over to, um, to the 3D department. You know, so lots of things that hadn't been done before. Those were, you know, just trying to solve problems and make it faster and easier. I actually had, on Dragonheart, I actually had written a program so I could take a picture of the, the model and scale it in size. It's all 2D, but I could say I've got it in 85 millimeter or 35, and it would tell me the distance and the size for that shot. So, and in other cases, we used the physical posable model in front of camera to check framing and sizing. Right. Wow, that sounds so fun. And um, it's really interesting to hear you talking about you know, uh, taking things out if they're not needed. Now, that's really like a storyteller's view of things where you know, you're thinking, is this is this in service of, of telling the story? Is it needed? Or are we just uh, obsessing about a problem that doesn't need to get solved? But on the other side, being the engineer where you're trying to simplify things and solve problems, it's it's really interesting to have all of that in one person. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's good because then I can say, okay, is this, can I solve this? I mean, I wrote a particle system as well for Dragonheart for the, you know, some of the ending sequences because at that time CG wasn't wasn't set up to, to handle that. Uh, so just trying to do those things. And then, you know, the other problem that we see and seen it now and even in virtual production is one of the issues with digital you have, you can change everything. Mm. which means that people will want to change everything, whether that's the director or somebody else, or, you know, and at a certain point you have to say, okay, let's take a step back. Is this, you know, are we making it better? Or are we just fiddling with the things, you know, just 
just trying to make sure that you get the, the quality of shots and what you actually need for the show during the production as opposed to getting, because frequently in on productions, you end up tweaking the first dozen shots or so because they're coming in slow at that point. And then, uh, you know, by the end, you're doing like 35 or 50 finals during the week. So you're, right. <laughs> So you've got to try to balance that out and just, you know, be observant about that and work, work, work with the other creatives to, to make sure it doesn't get overwhelmed. Right. Yeah, it's, um, so th that's probably a good, a good way to kind of segue into talking about the, this new-ish era that we're in that people are calling virtual production, I guess, in, in some senses, but at least using um, real-time engines, game engines to assist with production or in some cases even um, capture in-camera visual effects. Um, what, well, at what point did you start getting interested in, in uh, real-time? Well, I mean, it's funny in terms of like previs, I directed a project for a show scan um, called Space Race. So we they brought in a guy with his own SGI to do little animations for us so we could pre-visit. But at that point, everything was so simplified and very little textured that it, at a certain point it didn't help because you couldn't tell the speeds and so forth. Uh, and at ILM, there were a couple of times where they tried to use real time, you know, even while I was there uh, for the Hulk. I shot some additional plates. Uh, Dennis Miro was the the supervisor on that. But, you know, they tried to get Ang Lee to, hey, we've, we've got this tool here where you can start moving the camera around and get some ideas and so forth. But he wasn't wasn't interested at that point. So, uh, and then at ILM, they also did AI. So they'd set up the, the BBC targets on the ceiling and had a previs set up, you know, real time virtual production at that point to see stuff that wasn't the final images, but at least gave uh, Spielberg some some view of what's coming up. So we knew that real time was getting better. And obviously, anytime you see these computer graphic games, uh, you'd say, well, that's, that's looking better, looking more interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then about six or seven years ago, when I was starting at Pixvana for doing VR, I took a look at both Unity and Unreal and I explored them a little bit. I chose Unity at that time because it was kept more track with the VR world because Oculus was updating their software like every month. So, so I went with them, but as soon as I finished up with Pixana and that was the same moment that COVID stopped or started, I leaped right. to Unreal and said, okay, I'm going to just, jump in the deep end and get up to speed on what the latest is with all of this so what what was that experience like for you um well that that was great because here's all these different tools uh and you could actually do stuff with it you know move the camera it was easy enough to to leap in uh i jumped into all the different videos getting up to speed and doing a bunch of things and i could you know i knew the potential um and just exploring all of that and then they that was about when they started doing some of the fellowships uh mm. i didn't get into the early ones but i ended up getting into a uh spent some time with the australians they were running kind of a pseudo class open to anybody for for a while so i was doing that at night and then there was a visual effects society one which was kind of the same thing but you didn't create a film project you were focused on doing a homework assignment like each week you know you'd focus on right. a different task so in some ways that was in some ways it was actually better because you could focus on the thing instead of having to worry about doing your film at the same time and you could make sure you did all of those things except Otherwise, you sometimes during the film you go, "I'm not going to need that," so I'm going to just kind of skip some of that and move forward with this. And then it was last winter, spring, I guess, uh, that I was in the fellowship. So, so that was great because I was already up to speed with most of it, and they just come out with the metahuman. So, 
So that's what I chose to, you know, explore and try out. You know, so it's just like a very freeing experience for anybody interested in filmmaking to, you know, you, you've got your entire studio there and now you've got characters and other things and you can play around all day. Right. Yeah. How's, how's it um, influenced you being having access to that, to all of that in a box in, in one program? I know that there's other things involved still, but has it, has that inf um has Unreal particularly influenced your your way of working? Well, it's it certainly made it more interesting, more exciting to go. Okay, well, I can you know I because you know obviously when you're dealing with a big company with a lot of people, everybody's doing their little piece, and you know as an effects supervisor, I could oversee the whole thing. But it's it's I like to get my hands dirty and work on things as well. Uh, so in this case, you can just try out and explore. So it's, it's, it's really, um, benefiting your creativity just to re-spark that as such. Now, exactly, you know, obviously it works very well for virtual production, you know, and then the question is how it fits in with pipelines and other types of things, all of those, uh, as I say, it's a, an interesting challenge to dealing with all those different aspects and how to get the most out of it. And, uh, and seeing also be interesting to do some green screen with it and do some other types of virtual production as well. Right. Yeah, it's really cool to be able to make things that instantly. Having had sometimes I can remember times where I've, I've put things on a render farm of a, a medium sized render farm and, and seeing the time it's going to take back being a number of days <laughs> trying to try to like calm the producer down a little bit to say that you know it's okay or get me some more render farm and it'll be quicker but otherwise that's it <laughs> well, <laughs> kind of stuck with that yeah that's exactly it because you know when you were spending days rendering a shot if the shot doesn't come out for some reason now you know, it's back to the drawing board type of thing or take two and so forth and just the immediacy of dealing with it in real time means quicker iterations. And that's, I'm always, on projects, I would tend to do mock-ups myself, uh, whether it's compositing or something else. Uh, Van Helsing, they would transfer to my iPod so I could take some shots and composite them that night. So the next morning, I could review with the director and, you know, do that type of stuff. So here's a chance to experiment, try out things and work interactively. And you got some of that and that goes way back to like the Harry and Henry video systems or video effects systems, compositing and the flame system of having a real time or close to real time system where the director can sit down and say, okay, I'd like that a little bit greener, want more of that. Uh, so that's, that's the exciting part of being able to, to to try different things. And now with uh, Unreal 5, being able to move lights more freely and doing other types of things uh, is, you know, great to explore. And I see that as worthwhile for actual filmmakers and cinematographers. To, you know, you can, you don't need an entire stage and crew and lights and so forth to try out lighting ideas and, you know, concepts. Right. Yeah, it's it's super exciting to see where it's going. Have you have you been playing with Unreal Five? A little bit, yeah. I've been for uh, Fathead is still ongoing. I uh, still have a few more weeks on it. Just the, some pickup shots and things, but I've uh, been uh, experimenting, and that was four point two seven. But now starting to explore five more. You know, now that it's officially released at this point. Right. Um, another another question that's come in. Um, somebody's saying, "Would you go back to Unity, or what does what do you see as the future of virtual production? The major differences between Unity and Unreal." There's a few a few questions in one, but <laughs> I know. Uh, I mean, I used Unity a bunch on Lion King and Jungle Book. We're both kind of channeled through Unity. Right. Um, I know you've you've used it quite a bit. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on kind of various players, I guess, in, in uh, space? Well, obviously, at this point, Unreal seems to be the main company dealing with uh, the virtual production screens and so forth. But uh, Unity, I had good success with Unity. It does have 
a lot underneath a lot of the same types of things. Uh, I had to learn C sharp for Unity. I already knew C plus plus, but I already you know I knew C and Objective C and all the the other C. So so none of that was a problem. Um, I haven't kept up with Unity on their latest tools. I know some people who work there, so um, and I know that they're trying to push heavily into this area as well. So uh, hopefully they'll come up with some great stuff as, as well. It just at this point they're kind of secondary, um, but yeah, worth exploring and see what what they come out with. Right. Um, I want to. I want to ask you a little bit about your journey as an entrepreneur completely selfishly um sure. what uh, how what um it seems like you kind of went in and out of working for other companies and also starting your own companies you had three three successful companies which you went on and and sold um what um what inspired you i guess to want to do your own thing well, uh, the first company I started was DreamQuest. So yeah. I worked uh, on a bunch of things, you know, uh, including Star Trek and so forth. And uh, a few of us had, you know, some guy at DP wanted a time-lapse controller for his camera, so we designed that. And uh, so ended up Hoyt Eatman and myself, uh, who was another visual effects person, uh, and you know, basically five other people, myself, we had uh, Fred Gucci doing electronics, Tom Hollister was an optical lineup person and, you know, mechanical guy, and uh, Bob Hollister, his dad, and Rocco Gioffrey, who's a map painter. And we said, okay, well, why don't we set up our own company? Because we were, you know, finished up with Star Trek and there was going to be a gap. So we said, okay, let's, so Rocco and uh, Hoyt and I, basically rented the house we looked for a house that had like it was two and a half car garage we tore it all we tore out the walls inside insulated painted black and we did uh, escape from new york in there we did the mapping for caddyshack and for first family and a few other projects in there and then doug called up and said hey i'm doing this project called blade runner they're going to need some video graphics and things can you guys do that so we set up a company and and just start building equipment, you know, so we had to build, you know, all types of uh, motion control systems and other devices to, we were doing commercials and uh, a bunch of feature films. And then after five years of that, I said, okay, I've had enough of that. So I went ahead and left the company and went to ILM because I'd been called a few times by ILM to say, hey, you want to come on up? And so at that time they didn't have any suit opening. So I became, the CTO essentially for a few years until they had some opportunities. Uh, so then the next thing was commotion. I'd written it, as I say, on my own time to play back videos so I could check things and and then know I, I want to go ahead and composite and I want to use rotoscope tools. So I built all of those into it. And uh, one of the people at ILM, uh, Forrest Key was an editorial who says, oh, this is great, you know, you should start a you know company or sell this and so i saw a few companies they weren't you know it didn't fit the bill because they weren't they didn't know what to do with it and then um george had told ilm hey you guys should be selling software too but the games group with lucasfilm looked at and said we, we have no idea what to do with this so i formed a company uh and with forest and uh we got investors and we ran that for like five years. We had uh, 15,000 copies, you know, sold worldwide. So right in every ILM, everybody was using it at that time. The company, and you know, so I went back to ILM. I mean, I wasn't full time, you know, I got the company started and then I was working my day job essentially. Uh, and we got a small team of engineers to take over. The first release was 95% of what I coded. Um, and then we sold that to Pinnacle, which was sold to Avid. And then, let's see, six or seven years ago, uh, Forrest, the same guy, had called me up and said, hey, he'd done a couple other companies since, and, you know, did I want to start up another company? And we talked about VR because we'd just seen some 
recent things with and said, oh, but, you know, that's pretty exciting. And we could see that the video was lousy. Um, um, oh, I should mention DreamQuest was, I sold my shares at a certain point and then the company was bought by Disney and became Secret Land at that point. But, um, and then so, so we made a process to create as high of resolution on the uh, VR headsets as possible for video because we, we looked at it and said, well, this is terrible. So mm -hmm. set up a whole cloud system. And so you could upload all your different camera systems and it would stitch that together and put it on, you know, stream it to your headsets and we could stream to like 50 at a time, all synchronized. And we actually built an in uh, headset editor. So you could say, okay, at this point, I want to put a hotspot here. If the user clicks on it, they take me to this other video or I'll have these graphics pop up. So at that point, I was uh, I was doing the prototyping, you know, which is probably the best use of my skills is prototyping stuff. And then we'd have a team go ahead and build the finished, polished type of apps. And then when VR wasn't taking off as quickly as the venture capitalists would like, uh, then the company was going to pivot and I was going to have to move to Seattle because I was working from home and flying up there every month for a week or two. And I said, well, not interested in that. So, so that's right when COVID hit. Now, you know, then jumped into Unreal at that point. So, so what, what's, a, what's a couple of things that you, um, if you could go back to before starting those companies that you would tell yourself that you you'd learned through the hard way going through starting businesses uh well the first one is a visual effects company that was uh foolhardy no I, it was just <laughs> yeah it, it was great it was fantastic because we learned a lot because we had to do it all you know um you know if if we were to look at it from a business standpoint and we did you know we did end up making money, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was just, uh, just not knowing being, you know, what, what we couldn't do. So, so jumping in full feet, uh, and with the, um, with, uh, Puffin designs, the commotion software, I just was busy at night, you know, coding away and just developing this. And so we had most of it there. So when we went to investors, uh, you know, that was a pretty easy sell. And since I, and that's the other thing, since I was both a user and developer, I would say, oh, I really need this. You know, and I would understand what, if anybody looked at it and said, well, could you, you do this and say that? Yeah, that's a great idea. And I wanted that feature myself. So I'd go ahead and code it on in, you know, so, so that, you know, all of that was enjoyable. All, all the projects have been enjoyable. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, exciting and interesting work. Is there anything you do you do differently if you did it again? <laughs> uh, well, obviously, there's a thousand things in hindsight. You go, okay, well, I should have yeah. spent more time on this. I could have, you know, I should have taken that project instead of this project and things like that. You know, because uh, you know, like, like when I was on Star Wars, then then my producer told me, well, uh, Peter Jackson's team called and wanted to talk to me about possibly working on Lord of the Rings, but the mm. producer told him, no, I was busy on Star Wars, you know, so, uh, and then, you know, different things. So it's, it's been interesting having opportunities to direct specialty films and things like that as well as commercials. So just trying to cover as many bases as possible. Well, I think you've covered all of them by the sounds of it. <laughs> you've done so many different things. It's amazing to have, to have, I don't know, done so many things across on, entrepreneurial, you know, starting businesses and learning coding and doing visual effects. It's a, it's a lot. Oh, yeah. I'm, in, I'm impressed. Um, it, is there, what are you, what are you excited about um, coming up? Is there anything in, in the future that really in, in the future is a weird way of saying it maybe anything that's you're excited about for the future well you know there's huge opportunity of course with virtual production and i think that that will expand and tools will 
get much better. Uh, you know, the ease of creating your own material will get so much easier and better, you know, tools like Unreal and so forth. The other major areas, uh, machine learning and AI, you know, and mm. that to visual effects, you know, just we're already seeing the effects of some of that, you know, just being able to apply it and go, you know, uh, make it higher resolution. Because that was always the gag when, you know, we in the effects industry would see those movies where they'd zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, and go like, no, that's so fake. But obviously now that's possible with AI and just, it's kind of mind blowing some of the changes, the things that they're able to do between computer vision and paired with machine learning and so forth. It's pretty amazing. You know, the deep fakes and all of those types of things are pretty incredible. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny name that it's been given deep fakes because now it's being used actually in production to not, not fake something, but actually do, do real work. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, there's, there's so much you can leverage and so, so amazing to think, okay, now this can see all of these points and line that up. Cause the other thing is, you know, I remember when we had to like, even for Dragonheart had to line up 3d, that meant that somebody had to build a set and move with the, camera around and line things up frame by frame or keyframe it and then at a certain point yeah. you had the software to say okay go ahead and match move to this you know and be done with it and the click of a button so so right. more of those things are going to be you know the old joke of them going okay which which button can i press to make that effect happen and you know that's becoming more of a reality you know each day it seems like but right still requires the knowledge and the uh, artistic skill set, you know, to make that worthwhile. It's helping get rid of some of the things that a lot of people don't like to do as well. Yeah. And some that of the was tedious processes. Even, yeah, for even the rotoscoping tools and stuff, because before it was just so painful, but with the splines and other features like in commotion, uh, I mean, you see that now in things like After Effects at this point, but yeah, it would it was so much so slow and in the practical days it was really slow you had to you know trace the sheet and then go to the next one so one of the things dennis and i talked about early on was can we get a thing so that we can auto paint you know the, the you know once you traced it on the paper to just even fill that in with black and so i worked out a method with photo cells and stuff and the plotter how we might be able to do that but you know, then we started getting into digital and it was like, okay, well, let's, let's not bother with that. Let's, let's move forward with the new stuff. Um, and having been, been a part of VR quite significantly, and as you mentioned already, it had this massive uh, wave of hype and enthusiasm and it kind of settled into something more sustainable. What, what are your thoughts on, on the future of VR or the current state of VR, if you like? Uh, I've been focused primarily on Unreal and other things in the last year or two here, but, uh, you know, now that the Quest 2 is out and they're, you know, they're making progress, uh, you know, part of it is, you know, obviously it's owned by Facebook and all those types of things or Meta, I should say. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, there's, there's that, but, uh, it's, when it works well, it's incredible, you know, both both the 3D aspects and the um, and even the 360 aspects, and then uh, you know the other exciting thing related to that are things like light fields and being able to do right. certain things. You know, just a totally immersive experience if it's done right. So it's it's I find that another exciting area you know to explore and, and has a lot of potential in my mind. Uh, Obviously, there's issues with the headset still and all that, but being able to be, and, and you get a little bit of that, you know, with an LED stage, you're in a, you know, you're, you're in the, yeah. you know, hollow deck as it were. So, uh, it just being able to put you anywhere in the world and beyond the world is always an exciting prospect. Yeah. It's cool. Like having, um, a place where you can all, I wonder if they'll, they'll do anything along those lines having a, uh, an experience inside an led stage in, as opposed to filming inside it having an actual experience inside it 
be an interesting thing. I know that people who have um, domes, 360 domes, have taken that. Right. But it's been going on for a long time, people doing immersive experiences inside domes as a shared experience where you don't, you're not separated by having the headset. You actually yeah. can still connect. Yeah, you've got the cave systems and things like that. You know, that was kind of the precursor for these. Uh, and so a lot of universities have those. And certainly as the costs come down for walls and things, it's like, yeah, I think you're going to see that a lot more. And obviously at some point you may have them on your walls and just, you know, okay, let's see some scene out the window or, you know, pretend I'm now in the Alps or whatever, you know, underwater. That, that becomes your wallpaper on your actual walls if you want. You know, so. so Back to the Future was right after all. Well, it's, you know, it, that's the trajectory. It looks like that's all possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how sometimes that it comes from the, the imaginations of people who aren't bound by the technology and the, the telling stories and how science fiction can become reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it inspires the engineering. Well, Scott, I want to thank you very, very much for joining us tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you about uh, CG history and present and future. Um, thank you very much for, for joining us. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, and is there any way that um, people can keep in touch with you or, or you know find out more about the things that you're working on? Uh, you can contact me on LinkedIn. I'm not don't tend to go on it a lot. So, you know, uh, just, I'm not necessarily great at responding quickly. Uh, I do have a website, which I haven't been keeping up necessarily, but uh, I did post a blog today about virtual production. Um, so that's at squarestudios.com or .net, I should say, sorry. That was the old ones, uh, yeah, squarestudios.net. So, and then I have my old, uh, I, I had quite a large number of articles I posted to a blog uh, previously, you know, years ago, uh, dealing with visual effects and the whole visual effects industry as such. Uh, so that's on effectscorner.blogspot.com. Great. Well, we will share those with the, uh, the community and yeah, thanks. Thanks again so much for your time. It's been fascinating. Yeah, look forward to seeing what you do next. All right. Thank you very much. Cool. And and also thank you very much to our listeners. Thank you for tuning in tonight. If you enjoyed what you heard tonight, we'll be back in two weeks. Um, if you're interested in some of the other things we do, check us out at becomecgpro.com. And we will see you again soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.